All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf, joined as usual by my friend and producer, the one and only Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hello. We're back. We're back. short break. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. You know, it was a, it was a nice, nice little downtime. Little recharge, uh, spent uh, you know some good quality family time. Right on, very nice. How about you? Yeah, yeah. good. I was up in the mountains for oh, about nice. ten days, and it was really lovely. You know, it's that sort of like trade off where I I did very little work when I was away, which was super relaxing. But then I came home to like just an overwhelming storm of work because. Mm. You know, because I didn't do that much work when I was away. So <laughs> I, was, I came back and I was like, you know, being sucked into the vortex. But it's all yeah. fine. And, you know, because I mostly love what I do, I'm quite um, lucky. And actually, it was a really interesting week. Last year for me was an inverse of the norm sales-wise, mm. which is I sold more work to institutions than I did to individuals. Uh -huh. And this week, first week of the new year, I'm dealing with three clients and they're all individuals. And ah. so, and it's also fun because they're sort of the three, you know, baskets. I, I'm dealing with my best client who's a top collector who's you know sort of got one of these collections that will go to a museum eventually and so he's acquiring some work and we're trying to figure out what prints those are going to be and that's always super fun and then I have a new client who's super engaged and we work together in person for three hours the other day and I just had the best time with him he was really savvy huh. and when I say savvy just was really comfortable with visual language even though he's new to collecting photography he was I mean one tell is that he was more focused on portraiture than landscape so that's always really hmm. interesting and unusual yes um, yeah and then the third is a art consultant so that's always a totally different experience because I deal with the consultant I never meet the client or that's not true that I never meet the client but in this case I will not meet the clients I'll just be going through the art consultant so which is always interesting yeah. But anyway, it's, it's, you know, I'm excited to sort of get back to, I mean, I love working with institutions and, you know, it's really fun mm -hmm. working with curators, but I, I've missed sort of the individual um, collector. So yeah, I could imagine that experience being feeling a, a bit more personal. Yes. You, you having more direct kind of understanding of the way, you know, a person might live or be, in, you know, find out their interests or tastes. And it's personal for them often, right? I mean, yeah. they're collecting yep. from a very personal place. And and obviously, mm -hmm. curators are people. And so who they are influences what they're interested in acquiring for the institution. But it really is, you know, having to sort of fulfill a very different um, sort of goal and agenda when an institution is collecting. So right, and and uh, the other good news is there's some good business happening. And yes, <laughs> that's a good yeah, sign. no, no, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Good business start, gods. yes. <laughs> so we have a really great episode this week. I talked with the our first overseas right. recording. We talked to Christopher Anderson, who lives in Paris. And it was really wonderful. I've, I've known of Chris for a long time. We've met a few times over the years, but I'd never had, you know, a real conversation with him. And it was really fascinating to me. Chris went from being one of the most celebrated conflict photographers, mm -hmm. you know, photojournalists, but often in dangerous situations and war zones, etc., went from being that guy in that world to just stepping out of that world and sort of almost very organically without a ton of predetermination 
transitioning into more of the fine art world. And I found it very inspiring, frankly. Um, what, what did you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. Yes, just that. Knowing that Chris moved from that world that he kind of stumbled into a little bit, the world of journalism and conflict photography, into this world that he's in now, you know, finding out who he is as a photographer later on in life is, is incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, being able to, to have some success out of it, I think it's, it was, it's just a, a wonderful conversation. Chris and I talk about a handful of his books, not all of the books he's done, but a handful. There's one in particular that I realized when I was listening to the edit of the show that you did might be hard to figure out exactly what we're saying. It's just a word that goes by very quickly. But the word, mm -hmm. the book is called COP, C-O-P, like policeman, COP. So if you hear something go by quickly and you're like, wait, what did they say? That's what we said. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, we talk about, we sort of focus on four of his monographs and... Yeah, well, why don't we get to it? Where, as usual, I've I've blabbed on, <laughs> but um, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Christopher Anderson. Christopher Anderson, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, and thanks so much for doing this with me. Well, thanks. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. I'm it's uh, it's an honor. You are my you're actually my this is uh, you're like my test subject because you're overseas and we haven't done recording yet with anyone overseas. But you're I know recording from your home in Paris. So let's pray to the tech gods. Before I dive into my millions of questions, I, first of all, I've just absolutely loved doing a deep dive into your work, obviously. Knew your work fairly well. Um, that's why I wanted to have you on the show. But it's been just really so rewarding and interesting and fun spending more time. And so we'll, we'll dive deep dive soon. But if you can give folks a sort of rundown of your journey, your life journey, that would be great. Well, I, I, I always get scared I'm going to bore someone here because... No, um, you will not bore anyone. There are, I, I think my, I think my origins where I come from played a real role in, in what it is I do now. So, uh, so I will probably add information that might, might seem a little boring, but to me it seems significant, I guess. Um, do it. I, I was, um, I was born in Canada, but my, my family moved to Texas when I was quite young when I was a, a toddler. And so I, I grew up in a place called Abilene, Texas. My father was a, was a preacher. And that's why, the, why he moved the family to Texas, because he took a, a position of preaching at a, at a church in Abilene, Texas. And um, I think that growing up in a small town in what is, you know, like the buckle of the Bible Belt, in the United States, in, in the West, so to speak. Um, so, you know, it's like Abilene's like no country for old men kind of territory. Mm -hmm. Not, not only just, not only shaped me, uh, how I view the world, um, my curiosity about the world, I guess, uh, my desire to escape that place. But I think even uh, in many ways, physically, uh, or visually shaped, what I do, there's a, you know, West Texas has this big open sky and these horizons and this particular quality of sunlight that, that I think, I don't know, in, in my mind, it shapes somehow the way I, the way I react to, to pictures or what the way, I, the way I react to light maybe. But more than that, I, I wanted to get as far away from, from that as I could. And I think that's has something to do with how I ended up in photography and especially doing the kind of photography I did when I first started. I didn't study photography. I, I came, it was a hobby throughout my life. I think my sister gave me my first camera when I was young and I taught myself how to use it. I taught myself how to, how to develop 
film and print pictures and that kind of thing. But I, I never, it never even dawned on me that there was a, a profession called photographer um, until I was actually working as a photographer. The idea that somebody, you know, you can ha you can choose that as a career was was just not on my radar at all. But it so happened that a good friend of our family at the time was a a newspaper photographer for the Dallas Morning News at, at back in the time when cities across the mid-sized cities and large cities across the U.S. all had really great, and perhaps some of them still do, great photographic staffs. And they would put out these Sunday magazines with in-depth photo essays about different topics. And, and this photographer, David Leeson, was a friend of the family who, who I would sometimes go and I started going and writing along with him on, on assignment and, and uh, watching him work and that kind of thing. But the idea that that could be a, a, a position for me to end up in, you know, didn't never seem like a reality. And when I got out of university, I studied other things. I got a job at the Dallas Morning News, printing pictures and developing film in the photo lab on the night shift during a summer uh, because it was something I knew how to do. And it was, I was biding my time and while I was applying to grad schools, thinking I was going to go into academic uh, life. And, you know, in, in my mind, I was going to be an anthropologist and maybe, maybe travel the world studying other cultures or whatever. I don't know. I, I didn't have a really great form, well-formed uh, idea yet. And, um, I, I'm going to try to condense this part of the story, but, uh, this photographer, uh, David Leeson called me one night and he said, Hey, there's, there's an opening at a newspaper in Colorado. They called me for a recommendation and if you bring in your pictures, I'll help you print a portfolio and you can apply for this job. And so I brought in a shoebox of all these uh, photographs that I had been making on my own over the years. And uh, he helped me print up this sort of portfolio, if you want to call it that, and sent it off to this newspaper. And I didn't get the job, but they called and said, hey, you know, if, we, you know, there's we're someone else we may be looking to hire, if you can get yourself here, we'll give you a working interview for a week. So I bought a $300 plane ticket to fly from Texas to Colorado and work for a week at this newspaper. And at the time, that was all the money in the world to me to, to gamble on this $300 mm -hmm. chance. And long story short, I, I, I got this job working at a daily newspaper uh, outside of Boulder, Colorado. And that became my photo school. We were close enough to Denver. So we would cover, uh, you know, you know, the Broncos football and, and, you know, some professional sports and some collegiate sports and, and the, the local wrecks and fires and the, you know, Qantas clubs meetings and that, whatever, you know, whatever happened in the community. And it was really this sort of training of being thrown into all these different situations and trying to figure out how to make a picture out, out of it. And, and I did that for a couple of years and, you know, I was not really trained as a journalist. I was not trained as a photographer, but I knew that I wanted to still go far away, get further away from Texas at the time. And, um, you know, I started having this romantic idea about being a photojournalist going off to a war zone or what, you know, this kind of thing. So I quit the newspaper at one point and went to, it was the tail end of the Bosnian war. And I went to Sarajevo and I started, you know, trying to work from there and ended up getting, you know, little assignments for a time magazine and, and this and that. And, and things started kind of going from there. But I eventually came back to Colorado and I was um, freelancing for magazines out of Colorado, but, but at different points thinking I'm going to have to go wait tables now because it's just, I'm not quite making ends meet. And slowly but surely I started piecing together enough assignments to sort of become a, a, a working photographer and able to, to pay my rent doing that. Still learning every time I get a job, learning a little bit more and, um, you know, working really hard and maybe that would lead to a little bit better assignment or whatever this, this kind of environment in the photo world that I'm not 
sure exist anymore, to, uh, that sort of path. And then in the uh, 1999, I had been in Haiti on assignment for actual, uh, actually the National Geographic magazine. And the writer and I met this guy on the streets of Haiti, on the streets of Port-au-Prince, who told us this story about trying to go uh, and get on a boat and sail to the United States. And he told me this crazy story about this island off the coast of northern Haiti where these, um, these boats are being built and they fill them up with people and they set sail. And the writer, Mike Finkel, and I looked at each other and we thought, you know, how can we, could we go? Can we get on one of those boats? Just buy a, a ticket. And um, he said, yeah, well, I, I guess so. And I don't see why not. So we came back to, the, to New York proposed this to the New York Times magazine and I think they didn't really understand too well what what we were trying to do and we went back to Haiti and got on this boat and there's a, a long story about that whole thing which maybe we'll talk about later but we ended up uh, getting on one of these boats and setting sail with 44 Haitians trying to sail to the United States and we sunk in the Caribbean and the Coast Guard the American Coast Guard stumbled upon us at, at, um, as, we, as we were sinking in the middle of the night and saved all of us. And those pictures were then published on the cover of the New York Times magazine and then published uh, in other magazines around the world. And, and that, I hate to talk about it in the context of my career, but that was where, I guess, uh, photo editors began recognizing or answering my calls maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I started getting offers to go to places where I might be in danger because I think they thought because of that story that that's what I was interested in, which wasn't necessarily true. I wasn't looking to go have a dangerous adventures, but, um, but I was curious enough to, to accept those assignments. And the next thing I know I was, um, I found myself flying off to uh, to war zones and being, you know, what people would call a war photographer. It's not a not a term that I use, but and without thinking, without making this choice of that's the kind of photographer I'm going to be or that's the kind of photography I want to do, I became this thing. But it was never a, a decision that I consciously made. Um, it was something that I kind of found myself doing, one thing leading to another. And um, it wasn't till many years later that, you know, then of course, uh, September 11th happened and I was caught up in those, all, all of those events in the years that followed that, uh, going from one place to another, sort of covering that story in, in a broader context. But it wasn't, it wouldn't be till many years later that I kind of stopped and thought like, why, why do I do this? Why, do, why am I doing this kind of work? And, and asking myself very basic questions of what, you know, what kind of photographer do I want to be? What do I want my photographs to say? This, you know, very, what may seem to most people very obvious questions. And maybe a lot of things that you, you work through in photo school or art school or journalism mm -hmm. school. Yeah, but I, thinking I, that, yeah. I hadn't even had the opportunity to, to kind of have that conversation with myself. Mm -hmm. So... Anyways, I'm sorry I'm, ram I'm rambling on. There. No, no, I'm uh, I'm I'm quite riveted, and I knew a lot of these things already. So please, please continue. Yeah, so it was um, a mixture of being this uh, small town hick, uh, na naive small town hick. Do you guys know that term, hick? Um, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, trying to, you know, eyes wide looking to uh, see the world kind of thing and finding myself in, a, in, in these situations, I guess, kind of Forrest Gumpish in a way. And um, w without, a, without a plan, I, I didn't, I, I guess from, from a distance, it looked like I had a lot of ambition or that kind of thing, but I never thought of it as ambition. I wasn't, I wasn't out to make a career. I wasn't out to... Uh, you know, win a prize or anything like that. I was just, I was just curious. And so off I went and one thing led to another and, and there I was. Well, so you did win the Robert Kappa gold medal award for, for the Haiti work. And, and obviously it did really sort of propel you into the, 
sort of the conversation of, of top photojournalists and I guess what we call, you said war photographers or conflict photographers, I guess is also a term that gets gets used a lot. Did you have any sense of fitting in with that group of people? Were these your people or was that also, did that also feel like, and I don't mean this in any way to be like, you know, dissing anyone or anything like that, but did that also feel like a mismatch just in terms of community or was that something that felt a little bit more in alignment? And and also, when did you join Magnum? Two two questions in one. I'll, I'll deal with the first part. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you find you find a community in that traveling circus, at least at the time. I don't know what it's like now because I think it's changed so much now that the whole, like I referred to as a, a, an ecosystem before of, you know, the, these magazines and newspapers or whatever that are sending photographers off into these places to cover these events or whatever. I don't know if the economics, so the magazines don't really exist in the same way anymore and there isn't mm-hmm. the money for that anymore. So I don't really know how that happens. I'm maybe a little too far removed. I, I'm, I guess it happens to a certain degree, but at the time there was, you know, there was a whole ecosystem of journalists and photographers who were going off to these places and yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a big family. Everyone, everyone knew each other. You this weird mix of being competitors and colleagues and friends mm-hmm. and, and family and, you know, there are all sorts of different egos involved and, you know, some of these yep. characters are larger than life and some of them are, you know, all that could be said about the, you know, the, the sort of the eye rolling, you know, that part of it is, is true. There are these, especially at the time there was a, was a, you know, very male dominated world. Yeah. It was all those things you can imagine, good and bad, I guess, um, in terms yeah. of you know egos and personalities, and but at the same time, we you end up having these intense experiences with a group of people that are literally about life and death, and you are shaped and bonded by that in a way that I could only compare maybe to to what. I, I don't want to, I mean, it's not a fair comparison, but what, what a, a group of soldiers might go through um, mm-hmm. in terms of how it creates bonds with people and people who outside of that context, you may, they may not be your cup of tea, but you've been through something together that, um, that you share uh, an experience with and that creates friendships, that creates enemies, whatever, all, there's all that stuff that goes, there's all those little, you know, social dramas that go with, go together with people who are, you know, our work environment sort of moved from Iraq to Afghanistan to Central Africa to, you know, wherever. And, um, uh, you depend on each other for information. You depend on each other for, you know, sometimes someone doesn't have an assignment. So, so they're riding in your car and then the next time around you don't have an assignment. So you're riding in their car or whatever, you know, and you're, right. you're kind of helping mm-hmm. each other out with, with support and logistics and, and finances and sometimes for, for safety and information. And, you know, there's all, there's all that whole thing that goes into it. And I don't know if I can say, did, did I find my people in terms of, did I have that, oh, the, you know, that sort of connection, like, oh, these are my people. Certainly I made very close friends who remain close, my closest friends to, to this day. Yeah. But, I'm sure. um, yeah. but I think that's as much shaped by, by the, uh, the experiences you had with those people and, and you know, some good people and some other not so good people. It's just like anything in life. Yeah, of course. Of course. But there was a point where I broke from doing that. There was a definite stop moment, but there was a now in retrospect many years where I I questioned I questioned everything about it. The the ethics of what we do, the the you know, reconciling this idea of pointing my camera at someone else's suffering. Mm-hmm. And even though I felt that there was a purpose in that and but not being able to personally reconcile myself with it anymore. And even ideas which are where we can articulate better now, but at the time, and maybe I didn't have the language to, but ideas of representation and, and being a, a white Western male going to someone else's place and 
you know, the, all, all those kinds of things that I wasn't sure how, how I could make sense of it myself anymore. But, but then there's also other questions of objectivity and subjectivity that I had a hard time calling myself a journalist any, anymore because I, I, I didn't really believe in this idea of fact and this idea of what I show, what, what I'm showing you is some sort of objective truth. It was a very subjective truth. It's, I believe in the truth, in, in truth, but it was my truth. And I can't say that right. it's necessarily everyone's. And so I felt more what I was doing was as a editorial columnist than, than a, mm-hmm. a reporter. I didn't feel like my job was to go and record the, the daily score as much as it was to try and communicate something about what it felt like to be there on the best of occasions, what it felt like to be someone in my photographs. I don't know. But to communicate something more of an emotional truth about what I witnessed rather than rather than report some sort of objective fact. And I also came to this point where I, I felt like I had said all that I could personally say about a war and, and feeling this sense of re- repeating myself aesthetically with, with bad things, you know. And that's why I'm, I think my book Capitolio about Venezuela was in some ways me grappling with this, not in some ways, it was, was me grappling with this idea of, of what is photojournalism and what, am, what is my role in this that was sort of the period where I was breaking between, okay, I don't, I don't think this is what I can do or that I, I don't, I can't function in this context this way anymore. And then my son was born in 2008 and I realized that I don't think I could go back to, to dangerous places and function in the same way at all. Mm-hmm. And so there were, there were many factors involved there. There was, there was my sort of crisis moment uh, of, what am I doing? Then having a child. And then there were the economics of it that at the time I was, you know, I was on contract at Newsweek magazine. I was at the top of the food chain, so to speak, in the magazine world, but I still didn't have health insurance. And I was going right. off to these places and hoping that if something bad happened to me, it, uh, you know, that it would be really bad where I would, you know, not have to deal with medical bills. Yeah. And then the economic crash happened and the whole print magazine world imploded and there wasn't that work anymore. So, so it was, there was also external factors that, that had me, you know, knew that there was, it was a time to move into a different context. And, and you really did. I mean, because you mentioned Capitolio as sort of a project where you start sort of shifting your work and your perspective starts to shift, but I, I think it's the Project Sun, which is the book you did about about your son that sort of really ex- explodes the sort of former Christopher Anderson photographer and births this new artist, really. I mean, that that's what it, it feels like to me. Does that seem to sort of black I've- and white or... Yeah, that is, I think that's fair to say on many levels. I recognize that moment very clearly as, as, as the demarcation line, so to speak, you know, where not only did I found a way to photograph something that wasn't in a journalistic context, I'd found a way to photograph something that didn't have to be a story. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was this revelation to me like, oh, you know, it doesn't, I don't have to try and explain anything. I don't, I don't have to try and weave a narrative. Uh, I can, I'm, I'm allowed to just kind of observe and, and make images that somehow are connected to how I, connected to how I'm emotionally responding to something mm-hmm. and it's okay to do that. You know, um, it doesn't have to be academic. It doesn't have to be uh, journalistic. It, it's, it can just be that it would, I found a freedom in that and also to photograph something close to me and, you know, having gone off to the ends of the earth to try and communicate 
something about someone else's experience for the first time actually um, be making pictures about my own experience and very directly my own experience felt like, yeah, like I said, felt like this revelation. And within that, I also feel like I found my photographic voice in visual Mm -hmm. terms. Yes. I mean, you start shooting in color, first of all, like really, again, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I just know what I, what I'm seeing based on the books I have of yours and, and reading other interviews with you and spending time on your page on the Magnum website. But I mean, all of a sudden you're making, it looks like, so again, I don't know if it's all of a sudden, but you know, you start seeing these incredibly, the work, just all your work then becomes color, extremely saturated, very poetic, lush, emotional, um, impressionistic to a certain extent in some of the work. I mean, so it feels like, it just sort of feels like a photographer, a different photographer is born at this point, you know. Uh, yeah, completely fair. I completely recognize that. And and it felt like that, too. I mean, it wasn't like all of a sudden I started taking a new and different kind of picture. Because I think there, you know, here and there throughout my career, I think there are pictures I can go back to and point to and like, oh, I see the, I see sort of the seed there of that. Yeah. Or, you know, but it was this confluence of all these factors of the subject matter, which I was truly responding to in a particularly emotional way mm-hmm. to deciding to work in color, partly because, you know, in in a war zone, you, I worked in black and white a lot because for logistical reasons, because it's, you know, you don't get to choose the chime and day of when you photograph in a war zone and black and white is just, is, uh, technically more forgiving and it is easier to deal with, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of making an image. And so it was this like switching to color and being like, it's okay to work in color. And I, this is the hardest part for me to describe. There was this sort of something clicked where I understood how to access what it was I was looking for. And by that, I mean, is like, I I understood now, like, uh, I think I, I had already been understanding like how to, how to make a nice picture and how to frame it correct. What, you know, all those things, I, you know, made some okay pictures before that, but it was this idea of like, okay, this is the, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I recognize as the way I see things. And not only that, but now I understand how to access that on command, you know? And it was like, it was like being given the steering wheel for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, and feeling all of a sudden like, Oh, I'm, I'm in control of, of how I do this and really feeling at, at ease with, with that. And I can't describe it any better than like, Oh, now I, I know how to access that. Like I know what it is. And, and it's not about whether and it was wasn't about whether this is good or that and that's bad. It wasn't it's not even that. It's just like good or bad. I understand now that thing I'm looking for and I know how to I know the steps to arrive at that point. And and there was there's a certain uh, there's a certain freedom in that you know, liberation in that as well. Because it, you know, not not only do does it make you your work seem easier in a certain sense, but you're also not there. I didn't have this voice like chasing me anymore saying, maybe I should try it that way, or maybe I should try it that way. But just this ease with being like, it's okay to do it this way. And that's the way I'm going to do it. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. No, it, it, it does. You say in just a little bit of, of text in, in the book and son, just some words that, that you have for your son and and about the the book. And one thing you say is these photographs are not documentation or storytelling or even art. They are declarations of love. And they are certainly declarations of love. I mean, the love that you have for your son is, you know, obviously just so (laughs) 
forward in the in the book and and in, in the pictures, and it's incredibly moving. But I wonder if that adding there, I get these photographs are not documentation or storytelling, and you're talking about that that you drop that attempt at any sort of narrative or objectivity or sort of any of of that. But I wondered when I saw the or even art, like how do you really understand that? Because of course there are extremely some of our most celebrated fine art photographers are working in the diaristic tradition, which I would put this work into. And so did you or do you think of yourself in that space at all? Do you do you recognize that genre as being connected to or your work being connected to to, to that genre of work? Did you, do you, oh, does, that, does that, yeah. Absolutely. And now I do, certainly. And I think when I was, when I actually made the book, yes, I recognize it as, as now I've, now I've joined a, a genre <laughs> club. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when I was making the work, when I was actually photographing those pictures, it never occurred to me that those pictures were part of my work. Right. Yeah. It was totally on autopilot. I was just yeah. me very organically as a father makes photographs of their children. It just so happened that I'm, you know, a quote unquote professional photographer. So I'm, I, maybe I know a little bit more about how <laughs> right. to make that picture than most <laughs> fathers would, but, but I was still approaching it from the same way. It was this, it was a very earnest and reflexive sense of, you know, maybe if we want to get real heady about it, like, you know, stopping time or trying to hold on to something, maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. um, but it was, it was impulsive. It was really completely impulsive and there was no forethought. There was no, there was no drive of this has to be this way. I'm doing it because of this. It was just reacting. And I think that's kind of maybe the, the, the charm in it or what gives it its potency if it has that is it feels kind of maybe if I feel the purity or something. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until later, you know, it wasn't until two years into making those pictures that all of a sudden I looked at it and realized that, oh, <laughs> these are my pictures, mm-hmm. you know. To me, it was like this stuff I did on the side that had really right. nothing to do with my work. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. This, this is my work. This all that other front. stuff, yeah. all that other stuff is the stuff on the side. And in right. fact, all that other stuff, all those experiences that I've had from the Haiti boat to, you know, Afghanistan, whatever, felt like a preparation that I I had to go through sort of a, something I needed to go through in order to prepare me to make these pictures I was making now and that this was my life's work. And I remember thinking, you know, being very conscious of that when that clicked, but it wasn't until two, you know, it wasn't, I was two years into making those pictures when that happened. And then I thought, maybe this is a book, you know? And then when I had that thought like, oh, maybe this is a book, I st- that was when I couldn't really make the pictures anymore uh, because mm-hmm. I became too conscious of it in a way. Since then, I found a way to, you know, to access that and, and, and work through that. But at the time it was like, oh no, this is going to kill the spontaneity that I felt this freedom. But, and so I did, I made the book was made very, very quickly, which m- maybe in some ways I, I think, oh, maybe I should have spent more time refining it and da da da. But I like the fact that it has, it feels naive and flawed in that sense. But yeah, it was, it was definitely this, um, it was, the whole thing was a very, uh, it was transformational in that sense, but it took a while before I recognized it. So now, yeah, now looking at it, I, I'm very conscious of, of the genre that, that i fit into in that sense. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> no, no. And and it's just for our listeners, like you did another book after that about your daughter called Pia, which is, yeah. you know, it's, it's like a set, right? The two books fit together beautifully. They're designed to look very similar. They're the same size. It's, you know, you're dealing with a lot of the same color palette. There's a lot of pictures in Pia that sort of are like call outs to pictures from Sun 
right? So it starts to feel like a really, I mean, to me, it, it looks like someone really finding themselves and all of a sudden it starts sort of making sense and it starts becoming more rigorous and more in- intentional in terms of not just what it means to you, but what it's going to mean to us, to the people looking at the work. A- absolutely. After I did the book Sun, I had this sense of like, oh, okay, so now I found, I understand the nucleus of my work and now I can start expanding out from that nucleus in concentric circles from that center, you know, which is, which is what happened with, with my daughter. Of course, again, making pictures in an organic way because she's my daughter, but obviously more, much more conscious about what I'm doing and how I do it at this point. And with my daughter, I think, and how the picture is different was then I, then because I'm aware of this situation and also the dynamics between father and child and photographer and subject. And that's kind of what that book really becomes about then as well, because my, my daughter has, has this personality where she's performing for the camera a lot. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, she has, she, there's this playfulness thing in there and when we were editing the book with, with um, the folks at Stanley Barker, I was very conscious, like, look, I, I want to make sure that I, that you need to feel my presence in, in the book because mm-hmm. that's what it's about. You, you need mm-hmm. to feel this sense of this photographer there and this relationship between not only the father and daughter, but the photographer and subject, because, you know, th- there were these moments when I would always think is, is she is she performing now or, or is, or am I capturing her just doing her thing? You know, mm-hmm. is she, the, the um, age old question about portraiture is this exactly. <laughs> yeah. And a bit, yeah. But, but even, even this thing of like, is she, sometimes I would think if she may, uh, she might be making fun of me right now. Um, <laughs> you know, she, and, and, or, or in other instances, maybe she's taking pity on me. Like maybe if I, t- take this pose, you know, if I do this pose, this is, you know, and look kind of sad and look over, you know, it kind of looks like, you know, hipster German photography or something, you know, where it's like, you know, maybe if I do this for him, this is, this will make a good picture for him, you know? (laughs) Um, And, and to me, that was, that was kind of the, the humor in the whole, in that part of it was this dynamic of, I wasn't, I'm never really sure if, uh, if it's this thing where we're both we're both riffing or she's taking pity on me or she's making fun of me or she's just having fun playing a role i don't know um and that's the kind of the beauty of it and i think it, you know part of it's it's her it's because it's her personality but yes i'm i'm much more conscious about how i make those pictures now and i would say the good news is once you become aware and and really integrate the knowledge that once you put the work out into the world, for us, it doesn't really matter. All those things you were just, these questions you were just asking don't really matter to us. I mean, because we're going to just scramble it all up anyway with our life experience, the viewer. We don't know those things. Right. So once it comes to us, none of those things, I'm not saying that they it's not important as a photographer to have certain sort of guidelines and and markers and boundaries and modus operandi. You need all those things. But at the end of the day, once it comes to us, I don't know your daughter. So I, I all I know is, does this photograph speak to me? Does it move me? Am I interested in it? Is it captivating? Is it engaging? Is it, you know, so, you know, that that's just a whole nother ball wax, right? Um, so anyway, just to, for the sake of getting to different bodies of work, you're, you're doing these pictures of your families, you're sort of becoming a diaristic type of photographer, but you have put out two other books, if not more, but two other books that I've, I've spent a lot of time with that are not in that genre, but certainly embrace this new visual aesthetic that you've developed and taken it even more to the extreme. One is approximate joy, and the other is cop. And there, it's interesting because visually, just like Sun and Pia, approximate joy and cop have a lot in common visually. 
like the books of the, the kids, they're also extremely saturated and, and dreamy and impressionistic. But the pictures of people, which is the majority of the, these books, are in ex- extremely tight close-up for the most part and devoid of, of context. We don't really know where we are. And I wonder if you could sort of, I mean, I can talk about those projects, and but I wonder if you could think me reading starts to get on people's nerves. So if, if you could tell folks a bit about those projects and what they mean to you. Well, and uh, there's also a third one too called Stump that I made that's right, in, the, Stump. in the same Sorry, vein made, made yep. about um, the American political scene yep. in, in 2012. I would say, man, this is, you gotta, you gotta, Stay with me on this one because yeah. it's, I realize it's a it's a it's a stretch and a jump. But to me, those books, as different as they are from my family work, were born from the same same sort of dilemma. Maybe um, what I mean by that is, you know, the family work uh, comes on the tail end of me working as a photojournalist and telling stories about other people, and and all of a sudden, boom, there's my family, and there I'm just responding right. The pictures of Approximate Joy and Sun and Stump were, were uh, I'm going to call them exit strategies, where I was, I was presented with um, a moment to make a, a body of work about something and, and kind of being um, not sure how to deal with the subject matter after this dilemma I've, I'm having with um, ideas of representation and mm-hmm. ideas of um, uh, objectivity and subjectivity and am I a journalist and that kind of thing. And let me give you an example. In 2017, I was invited by a contemporary arts museum in China to come and make a body of work about the city of Shenzhen and, and sort of do a carte blanche work about this city which 30 years ago didn't exist Really, it was a, a fishing village, and now it's you know one of the lar- world's largest cities, and it's high tech, and it's modern, and it's you know this big sprawling Chinese megalopolis, you know. And so I get there. I I, I was invited to to go there with um, another photographer, a friend of mine, Alex Maioli. We were going to have this sort of photographic conversation, and you know respond to each other's work in in process as we're making the work day to day we come in and we edit together and we look at what we've done and we go back out and the work we make the next day kind of responds to what we've seen before and there were, it was set up in a way that people could actually watch us do the editing they'd set up this kind of aquarium in a massive shopping mall and people would come by and watch us edit and see the pictures evolve on the wall and it would be printed out every day but I got there and I was like, what am I going to do now? You know, my former life as a photojournalist, I come and I, you, you go and you take pictures of people doing this and people doing that. And, uh, you know, and you're telling sort of these little stories about what it is people do. And in the back of your mind, there's this audience that maybe is a, uh, an American magazine that is going to show these, you know, put these pictures in the context of, oh, here's what people do in this city over there. And it looks kind of like what we do here. And and I was like, I, I can't do that. You know, who am I to come and have something to say about these people here in, in Shenzhen, China, and just uh, kind of feeling very, um, like it's not my place to tell anybody's story mm-hmm. <laughs> was, was the way I, what, mm-hmm. what I felt like. And I was standing out in this street and the whole place is lit with all this artificial light outdoors where daytime looks like nighttime and nighttime looks like daytime. And it's visually, it's really confusing and it looks a little bit like Blade Runner and kind of the, the future is now and, you know, this whole thing. And, and I'm looking at all these people and they're walking around and they're staring at phones and, and, you know, part of it's me like feeling isolated in this new place or whatever. And frankly, uh, otherwise it looks, it could be the same. There's, there's a, a Nike store, there's a Mac store, there's a, you know, Louis Vuitton store, a Prada, you know, it's, it's all just this, these commercials, you know, look, could be a, I could be in duty free in, in any, 
you know, airport in, in the world. Right. Yeah. And it just so happens that I'm in China, you know, but right. they're all still doing this. They're all still on the same iPhones, listening to the same rap music, wearing the same Nike sneakers. And, you know, what sort of stupid comment am I going to make about globalization and you know, mm-hmm. consumerism? And I found myself just looking at people who were <laughs> looking at their phones at the beginning and thinking, ah, I want, uh, the only thing I was, could respond to really was just the, the, the humanity of it all. And so in sort of this, what in my mind was a um, non-judgmental is the wrong term because it takes us down the wrong road, but sort of this, uh, this idea of maybe Eggleston, the idea of democratic forest kind of thing all the faces kind of mean the same mm-hmm. and this, you know, this looking at the the pleasure of looking at humanity up close <laughs> and stripping away all the context of where I am and where we are. It could be New York. It could be Toronto. It could be London. It could be Shanghai, whatever. And just looking at another human being. And that was kind of fascinating to me. And that was my sort of exit strategy. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put too much heavy into that because it was really just sort of this, um, this poem about isolation and connectedness with, with my fellow humans, whatever. And so visually that was a way to sort of excuse myself from having to tell a story that I didn't think was interesting anyways, and allow myself to just be an observer of this thing. And, and, and I thought about it really like painting terms, like painting portraits and just being able to enjoy looking at all these different faces. It's interesting because in China, when they see these, these, the collection of pictures, Shenzhen is one of the, is the city that is one of the cities in China where uh, immigration is allowed, where, where people are allowed to move, young people are allowed to move there from other cities. Um, without having to go through difficult paperwork and that kind of thing. So you have this immigration from all over different parts of China. And the first thing that people in China, when I show these pictures, is they're like, oh, wow, this person's from, from the Northeast. This person's from there. And they, and they see these differences that maybe uh, the Western eye doesn't see. Mm-hmm. And I, I, think that's kind of, I think that's kind of beautiful in there. And me as a you know, was this totally lost person with nothing to say. We found that the sort of the illicit pleasure of just being able to look, to kind of stare like that. And that's, that was that. Can I ask you a couple of of questions about the work? I mean, one, I I think there's a real sort of ennui in in the work. There's sort of a a patina of melancholy. Absolutely. So I was wondering if, if that you felt that way as well. And, or if I was just, that's what I was projecting onto it. But also, the the dominant color palette is a sort of blue green. Is that something you were yeah. consciously doing while you were shooting, or is that something you you came to in editing? No, the blue green palette is like like I said. There's the first of all, there's the pollution makes the air like dense, and it mm-hmm. refracts light in a certain way. And so there's this softness to to that work that is because of. <laughs> because of the pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that pollution also makes for this like daytime is really dark because the skies are polluted. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so things are lit. There's these, uh, this artificial light everywhere, this big electronic billboards. And, and it's like being on this sound stage with this light everywhere. And, and it's, it's kind of disoriented and it, mm-hmm. it's this mixture of color temperatures and a lot of that artificial bluish green light everywhere. And so that's where that came from. That's, that was, I was conscious of that as I was shooting it. The melancholy is for sure there because it was part of it. I don't know. Am I projecting onto it when I'm there because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm there and I'm lonely and I don't know anybody and nobody's talking to me and, and I'm standing on the street looking at everybody. And, but I also had this feeling like, Everybody seemed to be isolated too. It was mm-hmm. crowds everywhere, packed, and everybody's walking around, staring into their phone. And there was, I, I don't know, this sense of isolation that I was feeling, but I also felt like I was observing. And that's the melancholy that was there um, mm-hmm. for me. And that, and thus the title. The title is melancholic as well, yeah. Approximate no, no, Joy. Definitely. It's like we've built this uh, this beautiful city 
where you know everything is possible it all looks great it's it's the it's the closest thing you can get to real happiness you know we've approximated joy here mm-hmm. and so yeah there's that melancholy to it for sure similar to the book cop which was you know i i started making those pictures after september 11th and part of the reason i was making them with a the long lens on the streets of new york at the time was, I, I mean, after, after September 11th, there was this thing where photography on the streets of New York kind of became, uh, almost illegal for a while. Mm-hmm, I remember and there were court cases against it. And, and so I, I had, for me, it was almost this act of defiance to go in and put this long lens in, in the faces of, of cops and photograph them in, in sort of in subconsciously as act of defiance, maybe. And maybe I thought I would think of this work as I was photographing it as like, I'm, I'm making some kind of protest book or I'm making some protest pictures that, that I kind of abandoned and retook up here and there at different periods over the course of many years. And I always thought there was a more of a protest vibe going on in what I was doing. And that's what was in my heart. So when I started looking at the pictures, I saw something else that was kind of more about that, that the uniform had nothing to do with what I was photographing. The uniform became sort of like a, a control sample uh, mm-hmm. a way of homogenizing the whole set of portraits so that the person in the portrait kind of came out more, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that they were wearing a uniform actually is, was beside the fact I, I haven't looked at that book in a few years, but, um, you know, I think that book may, may mean something different to me today after the last few years of, um, consciousness that we've been, you know, yeah, I know what you're maybe a little bit. Yep. Um, yep. Is that painful for you at all, the idea that the book may be misinterpreted or do you have to just let that go? I, I have to let that go. I mean, it's sometimes I look at it and I think, man, oh, it's I should have been aware and made a more of a point. Maybe I should have done that. You know, second guessing those kinds of things, but the thing is what it is, and yeah, and like I said, in, in my mind it wasn't. Um, I, in my mind, I was making a protest book that ended up not being a protest book. That now mm-hmm. I think maybe should have been a protest book. <laughs> um, well, not necessarily. It's the book you made, and and people will always interpret things through their own personal experience anyway. So that book's going to be, is going to mean different things to to different people. So let me ask you one last question, then we'll wind down. Has this been a, thus far, you're not a young man, but you're, (laughs) you're, um, you're younger than I am. Has this been a satisfying life thus far, this life with a camera? Oh my God. Thank you for a, a very interesting question. Um, I cannot even begin to say, to, to express how grateful I am for the life that I've been able to have because of a little machine <laughs> that makes photographs. Yeah. It has been an excuse to, to go to many interesting places and to meet a lot of interesting people, um, friendships that I've been able to have because of that things I've had to got to experience. I feel like it has been this ticket to have a front row seat to many different lives. And it hasn't always been, uh, not all of it's easy. There's been times that it's difficult to make a living, whatever, it's still difficult to make a living. Man, I feel so lucky to have had the life that this camera has given me, you know. And um, I don't know what to say any more about that without getting on, all gushy on you. But oh, um, we we're we're very well acquainted with with gushy and weepy here on the Footwork Podcast. <laughs> but yeah, if if you hear me complaining about my life slapped me because, uh, because it's, uh, yeah, it's been a very fortunate life and the relationships I've been able to have, the friendships, the experiences, my family, maybe because of it. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing. I can't imagine 
I can't imagine having it any other way. Um, and that, man, this sounds sappy, but... No, it sounds that's fantastic. That's what, what it is. Well, on that note, Chris, thank you so much for spending so much time with me today. And I wish you and your family health and happiness in the new year and beyond. And um, look forward to hanging out with you sometime when you come through New York City. And yes, thank you. That. Really, thank you so much. Thank, thank, thank you for having me. And, and thank you. I appreciate the thoughtful discussion. Thank you. All right. Be well. Bye. You too. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts. 